Um, so I'm going to be talking about uh, possible future missions with respect to in-situ resource utilization, um, more probably from a uh, human exploration perspective. So one of the first things um, we talk about when we look at in-situ resource utilization is the fact that um, you want to take a stepping stone approach uh, if, if you're interested in, in uh, uh, trying to find and utilize the the uh, resources in the solar system. We've broken it up into two different aspects. One is the microgravity environment, and the, um, the other is one that actually has a gravity field. From a resource perspective, you'll probably find very similar resources in both of those environments, um, but we break it up more from the processing and, and the focus aspects. And at the same time, we're looking at growing over a period of time uh, the type of things that you're doing, the complexity of the uh, things that you're doing, and the, um, the scope and the purpose. So, for example, uh, looking in the microgravity environment, we would start with, um, you know, the space station and maybe some in-space habitats, looking at things like trash processing, um, how you might want to extract and move materials in, under the microgravity uh, environment, and things like uh, in-situ fabrication. And then moving outwards into the solar system, there's been discussions about uh, uh, near-Earth asteroid missions, um, potentially going to Phobos and, and such. Um, from a planetary uh, surface perspective, um, one of the first destinations we're, we're very interested in from a resource perspective is the moon and, and the poles in particular, the volatiles that have been discussed this morning. Um, so we need to get into things such as the uh, regolith excavation and transfer, uh, the fact that we want to prospect for water ice, um, but there are other um, interesting things such as uh, oxygen and metal extraction aspects that uh, we could do on the moon that um, can uh, allow us to do similar things on Mars. Now when we talk about resources and actually utilizing them in some future mission, um, there are three major areas of interest. The first is just understanding the resources, what's there, whether they're minerals, volatiles, water, ice, whatever the case may be. How abundant are they? Um, how are they distributed from a, a vertical and a, and a surface profile? Um, are they homogeneous or, or not? Uh, as, as Tony was alluding to, maybe not in the case of uh, polar volatiles. And, and what's extremely important is, is how much energy is required to, um, uh, to locate and, and evolve these things. As I heat up these materials, um, do the volatiles all come off at lower temperatures or is it, is it sequential? Um, besides that, we also need to understand the environment and how it impacts our hardware. Uh, we heard this morning um, permanently shadowed craters may be rich in volatiles. However, if you're operating at 20 to 100 Kelvin, that has some significant uh, challenges on the hardware. Um, what's the local temperature, illumination, and radiation environment? Um, how does that change the, the physical uh, mineralogical properties of the local regolith and such? Um, and are these um, uh, volatiles detrimental to processing? Um, the mercury, the sodium that may be in these volatiles. Do I, how do I deal with those as I'm trying to get the water that I really want, for example? And then as we go through the stepping stone process, every time we fly a mission, we need to think about what's gonna happen next. If I do this first mission and, for example, I drill 
and determine how much energy it's going to take, how does that prepare me for the next mission where I may actually want to have a larger drill or something like an armed scoop? Um, how can I effectively separate these, these resources and volatiles? Um, can I go through repeated cycles and how does that impact my, my hardware? Um, for example, the SAM instrument on, on, from a science perspective, you want a clean crucible, one-shot deal. Well, from an ISRU perspective, I'm going to be using the same hardware over and over again, so I may want to understand that impact. So when we look at uh, in-situ resource utilization, we have what we call the mining cycle, um, similar to what happens on Earth. Uh, another way to look at it is uh, prospect to product, where you, know, you start at the global resource identification. We, we heard a lot about that type of data from um, from the different missions that have flown, especially uh, um, uh, LRO has provided a huge data set, but um, Lunar Prospector, Clementine, Selene, and such have also. Once we've identified these regions um, of potential interest, you go down to the local resource um, exploration um, and, and mapping. From that data, uh, you, you can then, once you understand the local resource and the topography, you can start going into the mining operations, the crushing and beneficiation, and the processing aspects. Um, but what's key to all of this is that first couple of steps, the resource assessment or the prospecting. Um, you want to be able to select your sites uh, for prospecting with all the data that you collect up here from a global perspective. Um, you, what, for, so the first step then is, is performing uh, an exploratory assessment um, of that region, maybe a, a short duration mission, maybe penetrators and such. If the data looks promising, you then would perform a more focused assessment, understanding the distribution of those resources um, and uh, maybe examining some, some early mining techniques. And if all of that works, um, you actually start mining the product. If at any one of these points in this uh, situation you get a null answer, uh, you have to go back and think about how you selected that site in the first place and maybe you have to go to another site. Um, one of the questions that I was asked uh, in, in this presentation was how do you determine what's an operationally useful resource or, or deposit? Um, and so, for example, when I, when I talked about the preliminary assessment, maybe we look at something on the order of a few kilometers. Um, we try to make hypotheses before the mission as to where the resource might be. And then for a, sh a reasonably short duration mission, you, you try to examine that hypothesis, examining features um, along the way. Uh, here's Tony's possible model with respect to uh, what we might find as we're going along. A big question, though, will be um, trying to assess if I have lots of indis ind uh, you know, discrete sample points, um, am I actually seeing something like this where I got lucky a few times but the resource is actually pretty uh, distributed or um, is it more along these lines? And so you know, that will take more, more exploration and, and, um, a, and a larger data set. Now, what is operationally useful depends on what you want to use the resource for. Um, when we looked at Constellation, for example, we, for the moon, uh, our, our only resource need um, from an ISRU perspective was to provide 1,000 kilograms of oxygen per year for 
life support for, for a crew. Not really a lot. Um, when you look at this, and I, and I take the worst uh, oxygen extraction from regolith um, model or process that exists, that's basically scraping the surface of a football field over a year, and I can get that much oxygen. Not, not a lot. However, when you start thinking about using it for propulsion systems, um, taking a lunar ascent vehicle to uh, uh, low lunar orbit or to an L1 location, you start getting into significantly more amounts of, of product per year. So if I do two missions per year uh, for a reusable lander, that's 60,000 kilograms of oxygen and hydrogen potentially. Um, that would be a much different answer in terms of operationally res uh, useful resource than if I only need to get 1,000 kilo, kilograms per year. Um, so a big question about the moon, and, and if I'm looking at propulsion systems, is do I just go for the oxygen alone from the regolith? Um, oxygen obviously is, uh, uh, is over 40 some odd percent uh, uh, across the poles and different forms of minerals. Um, or do I go to the polar regions and try to get the hydrogen, the water, and other volatiles that may exist there? So one of the things that we've been considering is trying to do a early mission that kind of starts looking at both pathways um, to scout out both what the resources might be at the poles as well as starting to consider maybe what, what the economics are associated with oxygen extraction. Depending on this answer, you may go down one of these two paths. Um, in either ca next case, you probably want to do um, that kind of assessment and, and critical function demonstrations leading to pilot operations before full-scale use. Um, a lot of discussions about where the water may be coming from in different data sets. This is just a very simplified approach from, from an engineer's perspective as to you know, what are the possible sources of the, um, of the volatiles that exist on the moon? Where are they located? How deep are they? Uh, what's the environment associated with them? And what's really exciting is, is the L-cross data um, that, that Tony has pointed out. You know, 3 to 10% water plus some other really interesting volatiles. Um, if I have a carbon source like carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide and water, I basically have a petrochemical industry on the moon. I can, I can do plastics, I can do propellants. Um, ammonia is a really interesting um, uh, uh, possible product from a life support perspective. The nitrogen and the hydrogen could be extremely important. Um, now, there's been some really interesting aspects in terms of the hydroxyls that may exist. Look, you know, the frost in some of these craters, the, the M cube mobility water, uh, at the poles, that may be uh, something of interest, and maybe I can get both of these on, on an early mission. Um, the, this is a, a debate that's going on that if, if neither of these two answers give me the useful resource I want, do I really have to go into a, per, a, a permanent shadow and look for the deeper ice? So here's those three steps again, the exploratory assessment, a more focused assessment, and a, a mining feasibility. And so from the exploratory assessment, we're looking at basically a very short duration mission, maybe uh, uh, in the sunlight, but for a, a region that does not have a lot of sunlight for most periods of time. Um, uh, 
possibly operating for, for several hours in a shadowed area that never sees light, if, if we can find that location near each other. Validate the hardware, evaluate the um, physical and mineral properties of the regolith, and try to look at a region somewhere on the order of one to three kilometers um, using uh, near uh, neutron spectrometer, near infrared to kind of help locate where the hydrogen sources may be, and then three to five coring operations, one to two meters deep. Um, and while heating those cores, looking at it from, from a gas chromatograph mass spec perspective. Um, and there are two missions that may be looking at that. One is Resource Prospector that I'll talk a little bit about that NASA's considering. Um, the Russians are also considering uh, a Luna 27 mission uh, as well. A more focused assessment deals with a, a much more longer duration mission, possibly six months staying for long periods of time, um, determining, uh, again, spending more time trying to understand the difference between this kind of response and this kind of response with many more drill sites and more data sets. Um, our, the RLEP-2 mission was along these lines that considered a, a nuclear power source for, for six months to a year in a permanently shadowed crater. This helps you map out the location and concentrations of those volatiles. Now whether you can do this third step, the second and third step at the same time or different times is, is a question, but you then want to basically look at how can I, what's the feasibility of mining that resource and extracting and separating it? Is the mercury, is the sodium, are the other volatiles that exist going to foul up my system to such an extent that I can't do mining for long periods of time? And so one of the things we're looking at now is called the Resource Prospector Mission. Um, a mission concept review is scheduled for September. Uh, if everything is, is go, we, we potentially may be heading towards a flight in 2018. Um, it's basically a, an international mission at the moment between NASA and the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, and its, its primary uh, purpose is basically to verify the existence uh, and to characterize uh, water and potential volatiles at the lunar poles. So we want to you know, map the surface distribution of the hydrogen. Uh, we would like to try to determine the mineral uh, and uh, chemical properties of that regolith as well, uh, measure the bulk properties of the uh, materials in the core. We want to heat up that, the, the cores that we take up to at least 150 degrees centigrade um, and see what, uh, what comes off. Uh, and we want to determine uh, uh, an extensive amount of uh, volatiles using a GC mass spec um, I doubt all of these things will be there, but it's designed to be able to measure uh, these type of constituents. Um, at the same time, um, we may be releasing uh, some, some uh, volatiles that, are, uh, uh, that the hardware may not like very much, hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen chloride, and, and ammonia. Um, these two, uh, one of the things that we're looking at is a second step, which is actually demonstrating how I might extract oxygen from uh, lunar regolith using what's called a hydrogen reduction process, where you heat up the regolith to basically 900 degrees centigrade, add hydrogen to it, and if there's any iron oxide in the, um, in the regolith, you form water. Problem is, is when you heat up anything, to 900 degrees C in the presence of hydrogen. Hydrogen likes to react with it. So we have found that small amounts of uh, hydrochloric acid, hydrofluoric acid, and um, 
hydrogen sulfide have been created when we've heated up uh, lunar regolith. Um, this is what the uh, resource prospector mission looked like back in July of 2012 when we performed a field demonstration of the mission concept in Hawaii. Um, this is not flight hardware, but it is um, flight functional. And we were able to put all the hardware that we needed to do the, on the mission on a single rover. If you've seen some of our past presentations, there was a, a much larger rover in the background carrying extra hardware sometimes. Um, but, but basically the idea was to show all of the operations that we would do in a very short period time, five to, to seven days. Um, we basically start out with a uh, neutron spectrometer that uh, examines the minerals and, and whether there's OH or water uh, on the surface. We have a neutron spectrometer that looks at the subsurface uh, down to about a meter, and our rover speed is based on allowing us to look down to about a meter. Um, if we find an area that uh, looks extremely interesting, we have basically a sample acquisition system that includes an auger that will allow us to bring some subsurface material quickly to, to the surface so that the near IR can look at it. Is there, is there water ice present um, in that top, say, 30 centimeters? Um, or we have a coring drill that allows us to take a sample down to one meter. Um, once we have that, that core, we bring it to our oven, uh, which breaks up that core into eight segments, heats each one of the segments up to a basically 150 degrees C, um, sends it to our GC mass spec, which also uh, has a near IR to it, um, and we can evaluate the, uh, the volatiles. Um, as part of this instrument, uh, we also have a freezing device, uh, a cold finger that any water that's been released uh, can be frozen and imaged uh, as well. And then there's a mobility aspect to this that uh, the Canadian Space Agency is uh, providing. So what I did on this particular chart was I looked at the instrument suite that was um, put on the RLEP-2 mission. I kind of consider that the platinum mission. Um, because it basically had a huge uh, set of potential instruments that the RLEP-2 instrument team uh, recommended for that six months to a year in a permanently shadowed crater. Um, the Resolve instrument suite currently has um, several of the, the instruments, not obviously the full range of them. Um, that mission had both lander instruments and mobile instruments, and so for Resolve, we're all on the mobile platform at the moment. The, uh, the lander pretty much dies after it lands uh, under the current um, situation. We, had a, we have a one meter drill, they talked about a two meter drill, um, and we have um, some, some mineral aspects uh, associated uh, with our instrument. If you look at the Luna 27 mission, that's basically a, 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 a lander alone. There may be a rover that goes with that mission, but it, I doubt it will have a drill or any subsurface uh, probing features to it. Um, but it has a suite of instruments for both mineral as well as um, potential volatile analysis. And then what I call the, the optimal prospector where you have a slightly larger uh, instrument suite potentially for your mobility aspect. Um, uh, that might be something that we would use for that more sustained or, uh, uh, assessment expanded assessment. So, so one thing that we might look at when, from a future mission perspective is 
Um, you know, doing this short duration mission, I call it Resolve Package 1.0 and, and Polar Package, uh, Polar Rover 1.0. Um, when you're doing this exploratory assessment for a short period of time, if you find a location that you like, um, a more focused assessment might be required. So now I want to have a polar power processor because I'll spend, want to spend more time uh, in the shadowed region um, than, than this uh, Resolve mission, which is looking at a, uh, a short duration sunlit place. Um, uh, and then maybe upgrading the instruments, but not starting from scratch. So a lot of the risk for this kind of longer duration or RLEP2-like mission could be reduced by doing this short duration mission. And then before I, if I really find that that um, uh, resource is, is uh, distributed and, and understood uh, fairly well and I understand the material well, um, I would go into more of an ice uh, miner mission where I'm now adding hardware uh, to go through the whole mining process, the excavation, the processing, the separation and storage, and doing that at a rate and a scale that is representative of what a human mission might want downstream. Um, so this is a possible pathway. You know, I started the presentation with this notional stepping stone approach. Um, here are two potential missions that NASA might pursue. The, um, uh, the resource prospecting mission that I was talking about, there's been a lot of talk about asteroid retrieval and utilization missions. Um, I don't go into the details here, but there are actually a lot of technologies that go into both of these that may be similar from a subsystem perspective. Um, obviously, the gravity is the biggest concern. I have difference between the two, and that will require a significant amount of, of uh, uh, extra work for the microgravity environment. But some of the things we're looking at is from this first mission, we might go down the pathway of, of the moon in terms of uh, uh, do I go for the poles or do I just go for oxygen from the regolith? Um, you know, how we built the lander could help sample return missions. Um, some of the things that we're looking at, water on the poles, um, I'm extremely interested in the ISRU community, extremely interested in water on Mars. Uh, how is it distributed uh, and, and such? How deep is it? Am I allowed to actually process it with the uh, planetary protection folks? That might lead to a Mars sample return mission that utilizes ISRU and eventually takes us to um, uh, uh, human exploration of Mars. And with that, I'll come to my conclusion. <laughs>